Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. From pesos to pounds, euros to yen, WISE can help you manage your money in different currencies. With WISE, you can send money to your cousin in Australia with ease, travel internationally without having to brave an airport currency exchange desk, and take away the guesswork that goes along with converting currencies. WISE lets you send and spend money worldwide at the real-time mid-market exchange rate, all without any hidden fees. Join 16 million customers already using WISE worldwide. To learn more about how a WISE account could work for you, download the app or visit WISE.com. That's WISE, W-I-S-E dot com, WISE dot com. Sputnik 5 is an awesome name for a vaccine. Oh, wait, I've been thinking it was Sputnik 5, but it's apparently Sputnik V. The V stands for victory. <laughs> That's awesome. Putin, man. It's nailing the names. <laughs> Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, here with Dylan Scott, ProPublica's Dara Lind. Uh, we are here to talk today about some exciting action in the world of pharmaceutical pricing um, and uh, possibly an exciting development in the world of actually treating Alzheimer's. Uh, but I guess part of the story here is that it, it seems not that exciting. So Dylan, you have been not only reporting on this story, but practicing how to say the name of the drug. <laughs> Uh, so what, <laughs> what what is it that we are talking about here? Aducanumab. I think. <laughs> Something like that. Pretty so close. The story here is for what? For for 50 grand, you're gonna get a medicine that you can't pronounce and that doesn't actually treat your Alzheimer's. Yes. So there there is a, a long backstory here that goes back decades even, but I'll I'll, I'll keep it pretty brief. So Last Monday, uh, the FDA approved uh, a new drug to treat Alzheimer's, which, you know, like you said, like we would think would be really exciting, welcome news. And yet, uh, basically everybody I read or talk to when it comes to drug development is outraged uh, by the fact that the FDA approved this drug. And so the reason that everybody is so upset is that the evidence that it actually works is not actually that strong. Biogen, the company that's developing uh, this drug, started running their clinical trials back in back in 2015. And the trials were running for a couple of years. And then in March of 2019, uh, they announced that they were actually going to stop the trials. And basically, they said, it doesn't seem like the drug works. Uh, it's not going to meet the thresholds for clinical effectiveness that we set when we started uh, these trials. And so, you know, that seemed like it would be the end of the story. It was another setback in the decades-long search for a treatment for Alzheimer's. But then, about six months later, came a twist. Biogen announced that they'd been wrapping up the trial, and they'd done some additional data analysis. And they'd actually found that there were some patients for whom there, there did actually seem to be some benefit, some positive effect. They, they announced that news and said, you know what? Actually, we're going to push ahead and seek 
FDA approval for this drug. And so that's, you know, that's a, a long process. And, and about a year later, in November of 2020, Biogen's drug uh, went before the FDA's advisory committee who evaluates neurological therapies that have been submitted for approval. And they, the scientists on that committee, looked at the clinical evidence and they came back with a pretty resounding no. They almost unanimously said that the FDA should not approve this drug. Um, not only was the evidence for its clinical benefit mixed at best, but they also flagged that, you know, the, there's some evidence that for people who are given high doses of this drug, there's a risk of brain swelling. So we're talking about a drug with, with limited evidence of its effectiveness and the potential for, for really harmful side effects for patients. Um, so that again kind of looked like the end of the road, you know, when, when your scientific advisors are unanimously saying that you shouldn't approve a drug, you know, it, it naturally follows that you think that the FDA would, would listen to its advisors and, and decide not to approve the drug. You know, people were encouraging Biogen to do another round of clinical trials that could maybe clear up this confused evidence. But instead, last Monday, the FDA went ahead and uh, gave aducanumab their uh, stamp of approval and a very broad indication you know, that most patients who are suffering from Alzheimer's or cognitive impairment should be eligible to take it. And so now... You know, the drug development people are freaking out and the people who worry about healthcare costs um, are also freaking out because, as you say, uh, Biogen has has set a, a price tag of $60,000 for this drug. And given that there's about 6 million people uh, living with Alzheimer's in the United States, that could be a pretty big line item uh, for Medicare specifically where, you know, because the people who are affected by Alzheimer's, we would expect Medicare to bear the brunt of, of covering this drug. So I don't think anybody knows for sure where it, where it goes from here. The, the ball is kind of in Medicare's court and they've got to figure out what to do. I, I mean, it's worth looking at the statistical work that went into this a little bit. I mean, I've been reading up on it since we, since we suggested this and it, it seems really like really bad to me, actually like worse than I had originally thought uh, because it's not just that, you know, the benefits look very marginal in the studies, but that it looks like they found these benefits by doing a sort of like post hoc statistical reanalysis, right? Where they, they had an original intent to treat population and then they didn't find like any benefits at all. They they had already set this like very low bar for I guess, I guess it's called the the study endpoint, right? Yes. So you define in advance what are we trying to do. So like we saw this with the COVID vaccines, right? The the reason we had this confusion, like well we don't know if it blocks asymptomatic transmission, is that that wasn't the study endpoint, right? The endpoint was severe COVID that sends you to the hospital. So in this case, they set this like really low bar for an endpoint, which was that it would slow the rate at which you see Alzheimer's related deterioration, right? Not like halt it, not, not reverse it, uh, but a sort of deceleration. And they did it and they didn't find that it decelerated. They then did this reanalysis and they said that, well, if you categorize some of the people as like unfavorable cases and you only look at this other subpopulation, then you got a slowing of the rate relative to some other statistical baseline. And, you know, I mean, I think like we've, we've discussed a million white papers here, yeah. um, often in, I would say, low stakes social science 
contexts. Mm -hmm. And like, this is just like always the risk you have with like any kind of research that like, if you have a bunch of data and some statisticians and some computers and you like hack away at it for long enough, it's like, you're, you're bound to come up with something. Right. right. And it's like, if you want to, if you want to get that paper published, you need something for your tenure file. You know, like you're not supposed to do that, but it maybe kind of happens and it's, it's not that great. But this is like, you're really not, I think, supposed to do that in like serious, like go, no go, like big time policy decisions. Like right. it's just like really not evidence. Yeah. I mean, like it's, it, it's, while to be hearing about this from the from the perspective of thinking about social science methodology, because like in academia, the notion of pre-registering your analysis is seen as, you know, kind of the intellectually honest vanguard of work because it prevents it's an honor system way to prevent you from doing exactly this thing. And yet here where there is a fairly institutionalized norm of a pre-registration equivalent, you can just say, never mind, we're going full steam ahead. And I mean, you really can't. I, I mean, it's just if you if you waived all economic considerations aside, right, mm. you would say, OK, guys, like that is interesting. Now you have to go do a new study. Right. right. Like, you have to say, OK, what we learned from this is that we think maybe it works with this defined population, but like we yeah. don't know. And yeah. now you have to recruit a new test population, do a new phase three study, and that will, you know, show us. Right. Like if if this result replicates in a well-designed experiment, I mean, that is pretty solid evidence, even right. if the efficacy is marginal, even if it's only a, a treatment population. But as it stands now, it's like a totally – untested hypothesis actually like it's not real information at at all and it's as somebody who was very frustrated by the extent to which the fda was being uh like really fussy about clinical trial design with the astrazeneca vaccine where it was a situation where you know like if you asked scientists and you were like, okay, looking at the information that's available, like, do you think this vaccine is safe and effective? Like, they mm -hmm. would all say yes. You know what I mean? Right. Like, like their belief was that the AstraZeneca vaccine worked, but the issue was, like, can you – like, would it be bad to let a pharmaceutical company get a pass on such a kind of fucked up trial I was kind of like, yeah, man, just like give them give them a pass, like it's a huge <laughs> emergency. But the concern is precisely that if pharmaceutical companies, like with a lot of money at stake, get the sense that they can just kind of like snow the FDA with like, well, if you look at this way, if you look at it that way, right, that you're going to have all these scams coming through. So then they like didn't give us the vaccine, but like are doing the scams. Seemingly because the scams, unlike the nonprofit Oxford University AstraZeneca vaccines, there's like big money to be made from from this medicine that probably doesn't work. Like they are selling into an incredibly large market. Yeah. I mean, yeah, the, the perspective I I've I've seen from scientists is certainly because as I understand it, it was it was a, they were actually running two concurrent trials mm -hmm. and it was a subgroup in one of the trials where they were kind of finagling with the math a little bit and were able to show some kind of effect. And so at the at the very simplistic level, the people, you know, a lot of the drug development people were like, OK, you've got one trial that maybe works. 
one trial where you apparently could not, you know, could not manage to muster any kind of effect. So, like, run a third trial and, and break the tie, so to speak. And yeah, like, we've got more information now. Maybe there is a patient subgroup to specifically target this at. And like, like you're saying, like, we would just have more and kind of more finely tuned information about who, you know, at the base level, who this drug would actually be appropriate for, especially recognizing that there are potentially harmful side effects. But instead... Biogen pushed ahead, and I think what's frustrating to a lot because of people because it's expensive, is, right? right? I mean, to run, run a third trial would cost a lot of money. It would take time and money, yeah, and it might get the wrong answer, of course. And you know, and there is that. There's obviously a very sympathetic patient population who's kind of hanging in the balance here. Like we don't have any kind of effective treatment for even slowing down Alzheimer's. They've been waiting decades at this point for some kind of hope, and so obviously that's factoring into it. But I do think what people are frustrated by is the fact that FDA seemed to be a a willing partner in Biogen's shenanigans, and this is not necessarily the first time that this has happened either. Like there there seems to be a bit of of a trend now of the FDA kind of willingly going along with a drug company pushing something towards approval with with margin you know limited evidence of its effectiveness um you know and often there is of course a sympathetic patient population at play this happened a few years ago with a muscular dystrophy drug where you know the patients really wanted it and the FDA signed off on it and yet the the science community and the people who follow drug development were like this is again outrageous because there really isn't evidence of this drug's clinical effectiveness. The difference is with Alzheimer's, the size of the patient population and with the price that Biogen is going to charge for the drug, it, it presents a, a real budgetary challenge that, you know, a drug for muscular dystrophy or even cancer drugs uh, would not necessarily present to the program. Can you talk us through, like, I mean, obviously. It's not like the FDA laid out a long memo saying, yes, we know that this is scientifically invalid, but we're going to do it anyway for X, Y, Z reasons. Like, but, you know, given your reporting and kind of your understanding of the FDA as an institution, what does it seem like happened here? Like, what was the, what, what were the dynamics that led to this being something where they're erring on the side of being too fast rather than too slow? <sighs> That's a hard question. I mean, th- th- there's a there's a whole history here with kind of personnel that I am I'm probably not equipped to go into, but uh, the guy who's at the head of the uh, the neurological division at the FDA, you know, has definitely been a cheerleader for this drug and like really, you know, understandably again, like I want to be empathetic, like they, they want to see some kind of treatment, something that holds a promise, uh, that for Alzheimer's patients. And I think there is a belief, especially in the Alzheimer's community that like, if we can get just like one, one first in class drug across the finish line, that is going to show all these other drug companies who have been really frustrated by the lack of drug develop, you know, the lack of success in developing Alzheimer's drugs that like you can get the green light like you can get there and hopefully that will spur like another round of of innovation and and exploration that might lead to more effective treatments and eventually to a cure like you know the the alzheimer's advocates that i've talked to have uh, given the example of uh statins 
as a case where like the first one that got approved wasn't that great, like especially in the context of what came afterwards, but it kind of opened the door for more drug development. So I think that is, that is potentially one, one factor that's, that's at play here. I know there was the great story written by a guy named Zach Brennan who writes for Endpoints, who gets into the nitty gritty of drug development. And he made the argument basically like a couple of years ago, they were reshuffling this neurological division at the FDA. And he thinks, frankly, like if somebody else had gotten the job, maybe this wouldn't have happened. And so there are sort of like, you know, there are personal agendas in play. There is this like complicated backstory of like the the frustration in the scientific community with with the failure to make any real progress on on treating Alzheimer's that I think is a factor. And you know, you have you have a, a patient population that uh, and a patient advocacy community that was really behind this drug. Like this was seen as as the most the most promising candidate that we'd had in a long time when the clinical trials got started in 2015. And so I think, you know, the news in March of 2019 that they were going to stop the clinical trials was was devastating. Like it was like where do we go from here? There were stories being written by science reporters of like has the last 30 years of Alzheimer's science been misguided? Have we been focusing on the wrong problem? Um, and should we be like almost starting from scratch and trying to figure out how we treat this drug? So I think that created a, a lot of pressure. And while, you know, I wasn't inside the room, I can't get inside of the head of the folks who were running this at the FDA. I, I think that the, the pressure just became enormous to show that like we can actually get an Alzheimer's treatment to market. And once they were able to do this additional data analysis that Matt was describing and, and at least, you know, hold up something is like, here is evidence that it does actually work for some people. Um, I think that just put all the more momentum behind, uh, getting the drug to approval and, and getting it to market. You know, unfortunately, these things don't just happen in a, in a scientific vacuum. Like I said, we have other examples like the muscular dystrophy drug where if the pressure is, is sufficient and, and the patient population, uh, sympathetic, uh, that can, I think that can weigh heavily on FDA. And I think there's good reason to think that that was a serious factor here. As we continue like the great post-Trump recalibration of what we expect politics to be like, the idea of public pressure affecting like especially FDA approvals of health treatments kind of got sucked into the Trump maelstrom, right? And mm. the idea in 2020 was that, you know, there were these impartial scientists that were being improperly bullied around by the White House because the White House wanted to show a political victory on the COVID vaccines. And it's really just worth underlining that the pressures you're talking about aren't even necessarily improper, right? Mm -hmm. It's not like, it's, it's not a simple factor of, oh, the, oh, big pharma successfully like bribed a bunch of officials or everybody knows they're going to get jobs, you know, these companies when they leave the FDA. And so they're going to, it's, it's nothing like that. It's a bunch of legit, it's a legitimately difficult public policy problem in which you have a very exacting scientific procedure that doesn't change no matter what the cost benefit analysis on the other side is. And so when you have a really big potential benefit and correspondingly a really big potential cost of like disappointing a lot of people who have been holding out hope for several decades. That's kind of the 
the less dramatic way that political pressure happens. It's mm. usually an attempt to weigh competing equities in a process that doesn't really allow for the formalized weighing of competing equities. And so it kind of creeps in in these discretionary decisions as something that starts to look a little more like judgment errors or bias. Yeah, let, let's take a break. And, and I want to talk a little bit about that, the institutional context uh, that shapes this. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. So, you know, the, the FDA goes back in some ways all the way back to, to 1906, but but mostly to the 30s, right? There's a, a Federal Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act, and it, it establishes an agency that's supposed to do pre-clearance review of pharmaceuticals, um, and it's supposed to check for the safety, and it's also supposed to ban false therapeutic claims, right? So the idea is to, like, get rid of the snake oil salesmen and the quack cures and, and stuff like that. And that's that's what the FDA was, was created for, right? And at that time, in the late 1930s, there's no Medicaid. There's no Medicare. There isn't even really the, like, employer-provided health insurance network that we know and love today. So this is a regulatory question of what can be sold to you, the consumer, with your own dollars, right? And we, you know, we normally set a a certain kind of bar for stuff like that, right? Like Elizabeth Warren likes to talk about how, you know, the Consumer Product Safety Commission won't let you sell an exploding toaster, right? <laughs> um, but they definitely let you sell stuff that's like junk, 
You know, there's like a lot of products yeah. for sale that don't really do what they're supposed to do, that don't meet their marketing claims. There's even this whole like underworld of non-FDA approved supplements where you're mm, able to yeah. make a lot of sort of outlandish remarks about it. So the FDA has what's for a consumer product, a sort of unusually high bar for clearance, right? Like right. you can sell cigarettes, right? Which are not safe or effective, mm-hmm. uh, but because they're not medicine, you know, you you can go do it. But in the later periods, right, we've come to have this very big health insurance sector, which is private, but regulated and subsidized. We have a lot of government health insurance programs. And so in effect, right, if a new medication comes out and it is supposed to treat a serious disease, an insurance company that's just like, nah, we're not going to cover this, is going to take a lot of shit from people, right? They're going to be like, the FDA says it works. What are you doing, right? And this is how you get into patients' bill of right legislation in, in the 1990s, right? Like the greedy insurance company won't cover the treatment that the government's own regulator says is good. And then for Alzheimer's patients, you're largely talking about a Medicare population, right? Mm -hmm. So you're spending other people's money. And in Europe, they have a European medicines agency, which does that kind of FDA role. But then they also have national health insurance, you know, schemes, which are all different, but they all have price regulators, right? Mm -hmm. So like there's two different questions. And like one is, are you allowed to sell this to people, right? Like, are we saying it's so dangerous or so fake that we're going to be like, no, you can't take it. And then another one is like, okay, will the government pay for it? Right. And there's lots of medicines in part because of this, that the EMA tends to be laxer than the FDA in in some roles. You know, like there's a lot of like skin treatments that are approved by the EMA, but not by the FDA, but they're not covered by European national health insurance plans. You know, they're like just to make your skin look nicer. So the government won't pay for it. But the EMA is like, yeah, fine. It's fine. It it works. Um, Whereas in America, the FDA is like kind of a price regulator, but it's but it's not a price regulator. Like right. the the committee that did this, like, does not have economists on it. Like, they are not, and they're not supposed to think about price. When right, they're right. And, and I mean, they're, they're they're not the right people for it. It's not yeah. their mandate. So, like, in some ways, the fact that this maybe doesn't work, like at all, sort of dodges the issue because like obviously there's no reason to prescribe a medicine that doesn't work but like suppose we were really really confident that this had just a really small but positive impact on patients there's then just like still the question like is it a good idea for medicare to approve spending all this money on Right. Right. And and in this weird way, you get to this dichotomous thing where you have, I mean, it's clear to me just like reading the coverage, right? The people upset about this decision are very worried about the budgetary issues. Right. And yes. the patients agitating for it are like, they want to believe. And like, who wouldn't, right? It's like, if you have a terrible illness and one group of people are like, I have a treatment that works. And another group of people are like, oh, I'm not so sure about your math. Like, I would take a medicine like that. 
Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? But then like the question is, is like, do you, the third party, want to pay for me to take a medicine whose efficacy seems so questionable? But that's like a different kind of a topic. And we don't have an agency that like addresses like in a systematic way. It, 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 there's no agency in the federal government that is like set up to s- answer a question like how valuable is this? And we yeah. and we discuss it as like th- like Democrats standard rhetoric is like they want Medicare to be allowed to bargain with pharmaceutical companies. But like it's not really like a negotiation like, uh, you know, like, I don't know, I've got an agent I work with in my book. We're not going to like send him to bargain with the pharmaceutical companies. It's <laughs> what you might set up is like an evaluator, right? Yes. Like nice, right? Yes, that right. says like in the UK that like tries to make a scientific assessment of like the statistical value of the medicine. And then you would have to have an economic analysis of like how much do we value life extension, improvements in in quality of life, just Mm -hmm. like we do at the EPA. Like we have lots of regulatory agencies that do this. And it always sounds like chilling, right? It's like if it costs $7 million to save a life, we do it if it's the EPA, but not if it's DOT. Like they have a slightly higher bar. That's how you do policy. Except with medicine, like we just don't. Right. I do also think that like, I, I wonder if Alzheimer's because of the nature of like what we don't know about the disease kind of falls uniquely into this like politics of desire. Like it's not just that we don't have effective treatment for Alzheimer's. It's that we still don't really understand risk factors very well. Mm -hmm. So it's not, you know, it's not something where there is a known population that you can tell early in life to adopt certain behavioral modifications so they reduce the risk of the disease. Mm-hmm. There isn't the kind of corresponding, you know, moral politics of like, well, if you get Alzheimer's, you must not have lived your life, right? So it's not necessarily worth it for us to like spend all this money on you. And the as awareness of Alzheimer's has increased, the idea of anticipatory dementia has actually really gained like that that fear of Alzheimer's is itself a really big factor structuring the psychic lives of older adults mm-hmm. uh, has really become a thing. Like I was, I was just kind of speculating on this when we initially discussed it and was like, maybe there's something about kind of the fear of losing one's cognitive ability that is uniquely terrifying to people who like work with their minds for a living. But I looked it up and like, there have been, you know, there really have been efforts to codify and like develop scales for anticipatory dementia in a way that you don't see for like fear of other diseases, which suggests that it really is a potent thing. And so it does seem like on the one hand, you have a lot of ability to imagine this could happen to me. And on the other hand, Mm -hmm. very few of the kind of inhibiting factors that might lead the public or policymakers to say, okay, but it's not worth spending that kind of money because on a certain level you did it to yourself. Yeah, I think there's definitely a, a through no fault of their own uh, dynamic in play here. And I, I mentioned this glancingly, but like when the the, the Biogen drug is, is founded on what's called the amyloid hypothesis, which is basically this idea that there are there are plaques in the brain that interrupt uh, you know neurons communicating with each other, and that's what help you know manifest the symptoms of Alzheimer's uh, disease. And when initially when Biogen pulled the plug on these clinical trials in, in March of 2019. 
it, it, it did. It caused this kind of total reckoning within the scientific community of whether the amyloid hypothesis is is totally misguided and whether, like, you know, maybe the, Sharon Bagley at Stat News wrote an amazing piece on this that I would encourage everybody to read. But, but she gave the example of like maybe that plaque is just uh, th- those are just headstones in a graveyard. But like, mm. e- even if you got rid of the headstones, the plaque, in other words, that wouldn't you know, that wouldn't get rid of the dead bodies. Like maybe there's some underlying cause here of which the amyloids uh, plaque is just like a, a byproduct. And, and so we're basically targeting the wrong thing. And so I think to your point, Dar, like that, that suggests like our, obviously our, our scientific knowledge of this is, is still, after all these years, uh, dramatically underbraked. This, this drug, given the, the evidence of its, or lack of evidence of its effectiveness, hasn't really, I don't think, ameliorated uh, that concern. And so that, that kind of brings us back to what, what you were saying, Matt, like it's easy to imagine in another country uh, a two-step where you had like the, the you have a scientific evaluation and then kind of an economic evaluation and yeah like the UK has nice Australia has a prescription drug board that that evaluates its drug and, and says like all right we think based on the the you know the quality of life and the life extension that this drug would provide this is what we think is a fair price but here in the United States Medicare Part B, which is the program that would be charged with with covering this Alzheimer's drug, their only real standard for whether or not to cover something is whether it's reasonable and necessary, which is obviously a very vague term. And for most of history, that has been synonymous with FDA approval. And they basically have no mechanism for a situation like this, where the FDA has approved its drug, and yet like the best scientific evidence would suggest it is not worth nearly as much as Biogen is planning to charge. Like ICER, which is this non-government group up in Boston that does kind of their own independent evaluations of a drug's worth, uh, has pegged this uh, Biogen's drug's potential value at like $8,000. Um, and, and Biogen's planning to charge $60,000. So there's obviously an enormous disparity there. And so like you could imagine an alternative universe where the U.S. might say, okay, the FDA has approved this drug. And so that, that would seem to put some obligation on us to cover it. But like we're going to pay for the actual value that it provides. But Medicare doesn't have any mechanism like that. Like there are some, you know, federally mandated rebates that drug makers have to pay, but, you know, Biogen is setting its list price with those rebates in mind. And so, yeah, this, this does just seem to reveal once again, uh, that the situation that, that the United States finds itself in when it's not able to, to actually evaluate a drug's value in any official way and pay accordingly. No, here's where though I, 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 I swoop in more from like an economics viewpoint. Uh, because so the, the law creating Medicare Part D was like, this was one of the very first policy stories that I ever covered. Uh, we've been reflecting recently. We're going to, we're going to do some, some back to the future weeds, uh, in, in coming months. Um, but you know, I, I arrived in DC in the fall of 2003. Um, we, we have this Medicare bill, uh, sort of like just passed, but people were still arguing about it. And this was like Democrats big critique of the bill as it was written. And it's like a very weird, very different political moment uh, to think about. But it was like Republicans put this big expansion of Medicare benefits through. And Democrats, 
100% deficit finance, no pay-fors, no offsets. And Democrats' big critique of it was that it was too spendy, you know, that if they had included these sort of price control ideas that Democrats had at the time, and there were a few different versions floating around. One was to create um, a sort of nice-like panel. One was to create a benchmarking. I mean, we continue to have this controversy, frankly. Um but Democrats ultimately decided in what would strike today's people to be a very odd procedural uh, maneuver that there were two Democratic votes in the Senate for the Republican bill. So they had a majority, but they didn't have 60 votes and they didn't have reconciliation instructions. So Democrats could have filibustered it, mm-hmm. uh, but they decided that filibustering like a big popular expansion of healthcare benefits on the grounds that it was like too expensive would not be viable. <laughs> um, so they just kind of folded and it went through. And then as far as I can tell for the next 18 years, like nobody ever complained about this situation. I mean, not to mm-hmm. say that like there were no like wonks, right? But like nobody in America was like, my life today is worse because right. Medicare is overpaying for old people's drugs. Now, people right. complained about the out-of-pocket prescription drug costs that non-Medicare recipients had. Right. But this thing the Bush administration set up where the Medicare benefit was a pure giveaway to the providers, actually everybody seemed perfectly happy with. Like the providers liked it. When Obama came in in 2009 to do the ACA, he had his own shady deal with the pharmaceutical companies where he was like, look, you know, you know, a lot of these liberals, like they're nuts. Like they want to do this with pharmaceutical price controls, but like, no, I'm going to give more people. It's going to be just like Medicare. More people will get health insurance coverage, which means they will buy more prescription drugs, which means more money for you. And then like pharma actually invested like substantial money in pro ACA ads. Uh, I was working Center for American Progress. They were financing like tons of our healthcare work uh, and like good healthcare work, like get poor people Medicaid because then they will be able to get prescription drugs and like Mm -hmm. again in the 12 years since that happened like i don't know like it seems fine like it's it's good for to have have medical research like what is the problem with the high prices and even today i'm like okay it seems ridiculous to pay fifty thousand dollars a year for an alzheimer's drug that doesn't work but like if we do it are we going to be sitting here 18 months from now being like Oh, and now we're somehow like hobbled. Like interest rates are nothing. Like mm-hmm. it doesn't mechanically crowd out other spending. Like we don't have a price regulator, but we also don't have a global budget. Right. It's not like, you know, Sarah can't go to the hospital because Johnny's got this Alzheimer's medicine. So it's like, what's the, it both seems like a bad system, but also I'm like hard pressed to say like who is going to suffer as a result of this unless it cuts off some other more promising line of scientific research, which sure. I don't know anything about. Like, is there like is there some other Alzheimer's drug that's better? I, I no, I don't think so. I mean, there are some alter you know some other drugs that are pursuing kind of alternative routes to treating Alzheimer's that I think are they're in much early you know their clinical trials got started a couple 
couple years after Biogen. So like they're still probably a couple years away from really having results that we could evaluate. I, I did hear the concern though from one of the, the drug experts that I talked to of like, all right, so Biogen just got this drug approved with really limited evidence and yet they're going to be able to charge this price for it. And they, you know, the one reading of that is that like now we've opened the door and maybe a much, a bunch more drug development will follow. This person I talked to raised the concern of like, are we sure anybody else is going to be all that interested in pursuing Alzheimer's drugs? Because one, you know, because there's no existing treatment, you have to admit, imagine as many patients as possible are going to want to have access to Biogen's drug, which kind of biases your potential patient population for running clinical trials of your mm -hmm. own. And on top of that, it's like, why would we spend a whole lot of money like trying to come up with some wonder drug or a cure for Alzheimer's when all we apparently have to do is meet this very low threshold for clinical effectiveness to get the FDA to sign on, off on it. Like, it, it arguably, obviously the Alzheimer's community has a different view of this, but it arguably kind of creates a disincentive for, for really trying to, to find some kind of breakthrough or, or like a cure because like you apparently can, can get the FDA to approve a drug and, and sell it for $60,000 a year with, with the kind of evidence base that, that Biogen has. So I think that is, that is kind of an open question. I mean, I think luckily there are some of these other uh, treatments already in clinical trials. So hopefully here in the next few years, maybe we'll get an, an idea of whether they have uh, more success than this amyloid uh, treatment has. And I think though, to your first point, it's it's a fair one. Like, yes, like we've, we've massively expanded health uh, health coverage several times this century. And like a lot of the kind of uh, apocalyptic warnings about what would happen as a result haven't, haven't necessarily come true. And, and I wonder, you know, I, I'm certainly receptive to the idea that here there may be a sort of like a, a chicken little element, uh, in play. But I, I do think what maybe, I mean, what everybody is worried about is just the scale here because of the number of Alzheimer's patients combined with the price that Biogen is planning to charge. And just to put it in perspective, you know, it's all preliminary because we don't actually know how many patients will take it. But like, if you just kind of extrapolated the number of Alzheimer's patients and Biogen's price, uh, we're talking about a drug that would cost Medicare Part B basically about $100 billion a year. And currently, Medicare Part B spends about $30 billion a year on prescription drugs. And even if you bring in Medicare Part D into it, the total Medicare drug spend is about $130 billion. And so this drug alone is nearly doubling the amount of money that Medicare, the entire program, spends on prescription drugs in a given year. And so, you know, the trickle-down effect of that, whether that's in taxes needed to be raised to, to cover the cost, and, you know, there will be, for like, Medic, you know, people on Medicare do pay pay premiums. At least some of them do. Um, you know that potential trickle down effect. I think that is what it's the scale of it is. I think what's got a lot of healthcare experts kind of quaking in their boots right now. And yet, you know, I, I, I I'm totally receptive to the idea that that maybe we'll figure it out. I, I do think what what and the other thing that's throwing people off is where we started, which is that this is a drug. You know, we're talking about that kind of budgetary risk for a drug that may not even really work. And like, you know, as one of the people I talked to said, like, if this was a cure for Alzheimer's, you know, the the societal benefit and and the moral imperative would be such that we would figure it out. But the fact that we might have to figure it out uh, for something that may not even be helping that 
people that much, I think is what uh, some of the the folks who are so outraged find outrageous. So the other thing that I think is kind of worth bringing up here is something that Matt mentioned in passing at the be- toward the beginning of the episode, which is, you know, in general, like, yes, slippery slope arguments are dumb, but in a world where we've just spent several months being concerned that in a global pandemic, breaking the rules for FDA approval was going to lead to some kind of, you know, slippery slope problem outside the context of a global pandemic. Like, yes, this is a very sympathetic population. It's a very broad population. There are all of these equities that we've been talking about, but like those aren't discrete things that couldn't also be used by other pharmaceutical companies to argue for approval of their drugs in other contexts. And so as long as the idea is out there that you've just raised, Dylan, that like, yes, in the past, the worst case scenarios haven't materialized, but there are reasons to believe that like this could really be the distortionary one that changes things. It's possible that you know, the political lesson of this is that you don't need to go through the scientific hoops as long as you can make the political argument that you really need to approve this. But this is where I kind of wonder, Dylan, like what you just laid out, the concern that this is going to disincentivize further Alzheimer's research seems to kind of be the photo negative of what you were talking about earlier with patient advocates feeling that this, that approval of this drug was needed to encourage future research. And like, I can understand that both, like both, you know, you've laid out both kind of logical arguments, but it does seem like one is more likely to be empirically plausible than the other. And I wonder which one you think is more likely to happen. Oh, oh man, put me on the spot. You, you do get to claim journalist privilege and like not quantitize. That's <laughs> no. totally fine. So I think like the statins are the example I think I mentioned before that Alzheimer's advocates will give of like, if you open the door, others will follow. I do wonder, and I guess worry, like, I don't know enough to say this confidently, but so let's call it a hunch. But I wonder if like the kind of science of heart disease and cholesterol, you know, and that, and that stuff was just like a little, a little sounder. Like, yeah, we, we were still trying to figure out the right mechanisms for regulating it, but like we knew what was causing heart problems and therefore what these heart drugs, uh, would, should be targeting. And it was just figuring out a way of doing it. Like I was saying before, I think it still is pretty unsettled, like, and you said this, Dara, like, what actually causes Alzheimer's and whether the therapies that we've been developing are actually targeting the right thing. I could at least imagine a scenario where, like, the Alzheimer's advocates are right and, like, this encourages other drug companies to start pursuing their own treatments. You could at least imagine us reaching an endpoint where it's like, yeah, but... As it turned out, the amyloid hypothesis was all wrong. And all of this, you know, it was, we were already kind of in this situation in, in the spring of 2019 when the Biogen had stopped their t- clinical trials. Everybody was, was wondering whether the amyloid hypothesis had been all wrong. Now, because Biogen, you know, forged ahead and has gotten FDA approval, I think it's given that, that theory some reprieve, but I don't think it's, it's necessarily validated it, uh, for all time by any means. So I think that is, that's kind of like one one risk here uh, that that sort of allows almost like everybody to be right in the worst <laughs> possible way. But yeah, I mean, it, it is kind of a, a fundamental disagreement. And like, 
like you said, I can see why both sides feel the way, you know, see it the way that they do. I do wonder, I feel like what distinguishes Alzheimer's from, from some of those prior examples of a first in class drug, then yielding second and third and fourth class drugs is that the science on Alzheimer's is a lot less settled. Um, and so now, you know, we were already putting all, most of our eggs in the amyloid basket. And are we just going to take whatever eggs we might have left and throw them in there too? I think that's potentially a risky proposition. This reminds me, you know, less of a, a sort of drug approval issues, but then above some of the um, science funding stuff that Darren and I talked about, mm. uh, you know, a few weeks ago, which is that, you know, I kind of get a picture of a community of research scientists who, you know, for whatever reason, came upon this hypothesis, worked on it. There have been a lot of publications on it. There is now a lot of drug company money, you know, actively pursuing research programs that are based on this. There's a lot of funding for your lab that is trying to do incremental work that accepts this hypothesis. And that if you question the hypothesis, I mean, not because people are mean, but like they're sincere, but it's like Mm -hmm. people who have a sincere belief in this hypothesis now have a lot of money. They have a lot of institutional backing. They clearly have the ear of the FDA, right? They are there. And so if you work broadly in this area, but like you think that hypothesis is wrong, it is probably easier for you to find something else to work on that like isn't Alzheimer's. And then you could like tell a journalist, you know, I think this hypothesis is wrong, but you probably can't like get, because everything is based on peer reviews and Mm -hmm. submitting things to committees at the NIH that are made up of the people who approved the previous study. Right. And that we are probably just underweight on like, maybe this is wrong and we should pursue a different thing because, you know, like it's going to hurt people's feelings. You know, there there are like lots of reasons why people would want to not pursue alternate lines of research that aren't like good reasons. Like if we if we wasted a bunch of money on experiments like pursuing some other hypothesis, like that wouldn't actually hurt anybody. Yeah. And if the other view turns out to be right, like the gains would be really, really large, but that's like not how the institutions that we have function. You are much likelier to get ahead with sort of incremental progress following this hypothesis. And then the approval of this drug is like the ultimate example of that, right? Like Mm -hmm. I think generically, if you just like said to the FDA, like what if I showed up to you Right. If you just described the nature of the statistical evidence, you'd be like, well, I had two trials and it only worked in one of the trials. And in that trial, it only worked with the statistical reanalysis. They'd be like, I don't know, man, like that sounds pretty like that sounds pretty bad. It's only the context, right, that this was the promising drug that was based on the consensus hypothesis, blah, 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 that like makes it sound like even remotely plausible, right? It's like you have so much momentum behind the idea that like taking out these plaques is like what we want to do, that even very marginal progress, like at deplaquing, like everybody wants to sort of applaud you for, like that worries me more than the the price of the drug. But it's like, what are we doing? Are we as a as a research community and as a funding community going to like decide that we want to pretend like this 
this is really working? Um, or can we admit to ourselves that like, we're really like living on a prayer here and ought to consider, you know, like, like, like what else we can do? Yeah, no, and and then the phenomenon you just described is is absolutely real. I've already name checked uh, Sharon Begley's magnum opus on the amyloid hypothesis uh, that she wrote in 2019 after Biogen had had halted their trials. And two two anecdotes from that come to mind that, that just confirm uh, what you just the the problem that you laid out. One was a scientist who was pursuing an alternative line of research, and she was submitting her articles to major medical journals. And the problem was, you know, because she She'd been working on this for a couple of decades. She had only be, ever been published in what you might call like mid-major medical journals. And so like before they even got to like evaluating what she was sending, they were just looking at her credentials and they were like, well, you've never really been published in a major journal before. So like we're I, the impression was like, we're just, we can't really take this this seriously. And that that is, I think, in one example of the kind of gatekeeping that you're describing. And the other one was she quoted an anonymous uh, scientist who works at a pharmaceutical company. And they said, like, you know, think about the incentives here. If you're just like somebody who works on drug development in big pharma, like, if you propose pursuing an amyloid drug, and it doesn't work, then like, you can just say like, well, we were just listening to what all the smartest people and academia said and, and following that consensus. But if you pro propose something else, and it doesn't work, like, good luck with your career, like you're probably done for and you're gonna have to find some other line of work. So I think that has that has totally manifested here with the pursuit of Alzheimer's research. And like, yeah, I guess it's like we could probably just and I think most people would agree with this, like we could just be spending more money on research, like, you know, I know from the researchers perspective, that's always the answer. But <laughs> we also need to be I think there's a pretty strong case to be made that, that we should be diversifying our, our research as well. All right. We should probably talk about the white paper. Yeah, let's do it. All right, let's take a break. We'll get the white paper. Wise is the app that makes using different currencies easy. Need to send dollars to your cousin in Bali fast? Getting paid in another currency and don't want to lose out because of inflated exchange rates? Want travel money without having to slog through the currency exchange kiosk? Then WISE might just be your answer. From pesos to pounds, euros to yen, WISE takes the guesswork out of converting currencies. You can send and spend money worldwide at the real-time mid-market exchange rate with no markups and no hidden fees. In 2023, people sent over $100 billion worldwide with WISE. What's more, over half of those transfers got to their destination in less time than it takes to listen to this ad. Whether you're traveling, sending money abroad, or doing business, let WISE help you manage your money in different currencies with ease. Join 16 million customers already using WISE worldwide. To learn more about how a WISE account could work for you, download the app or visit WISE.com. That's WISE, W-I-S-E.com, WISE.com. Vacations can be tricky. You already know how to book flights and hotels, but now the only thing you're missing is, you know, the actual travel experience. Because is it really a vacation if you're just sitting around like you would at home? You need a tool to get the most out of your time away. That's where Viator steps in. You can book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. 
Real Traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who already been on the experiences you're considering, so you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Okay, our paper today is Employed in a Snap, The Impact of Work Requirements on Program Participation and Labor Supply. It's by Colin Gray, Adam Leave, Elena Prager, Kelsey Bukelis, and Mary Zaki. Um, and this looks at the question of imposing work requirements on the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, SNAP, aka food stamps. You, you could have different motives for wanting to attach a work requirement to SNAP, right? I, I think an optimistic view would be that you tell people, okay, you got to work if you want to keep getting SNAP benefits. So then people kind of get off their butts and they get a job and their incomes go up, but they also have their SNAP benefits. And so living standards rise, the production possibility frontier of the economy is pushed out, all kinds of good things happen. Um, Maybe, you know, true believers in fully automated luxury communism say it would be better if they didn't work, but but like normies will call it a success. What these guys find is that that is not the case, Um, that what happens when you impose the work requirement is some people lose benefits. Um, but there is no, you are, you are identifying some, uh, perhaps unworthy people who you, you kick off or something like that. Um, but you're not actually encouraging any work. I believe from past episodes of the weeds, this is the general finding about Medicaid as well, that it, it works as a way to cut the roles, right? Like if you, if you want to say, I feel unsympathetic to non-working people, um, this successfully identifies them and gets them off. It doesn't generate work benefits, um, which I think is the claim one would make on behalf of this idea. The way that this study was designed, the, the researchers go through a decent job of saying, you know, it's surprisingly hard to get really good data on this because at a certain point, you're not actually measuring the treatment effect. You're measuring something closer to intent to treat because you're selecting out people who would have qualified for SNAP, but or people people who qualify for SNAP but choose not to go on public assistance programs for other reasons. Um, and so what they've done here is look at a period in which Virginia had kind of waived its work requirement for the Great Recession. Uh, take the population that was on snap at the end of that period when Virginia said, okay, you know, it's 2013, Great Recession's over, get back to work. And how many of those people, you know, subsequently dropped out of program participation also takes advantage of the fact that the work requirement drops at age 50, which is a pretty sharp disconnect. But, you know, by looking at that population, like looking at that kind of timeline is a pretty good reminder that it's not that there's a consensus that you'll always go back to work if you're being told that you have to be working for public assistance, that there are times that policymakers agree, okay, clearly nobody's going to find work whether they want to or not, so we're just going to waive this requirement. We've just been through another one of those with COVID. And so, you know, it seems like this sort of finding would be very useful, right? Because it's saying, okay, now that we've all agreed that it's not, you know, a moral imperative to have work in an environment where you wouldn't be able to get it, 
let's look at, you know, whether this actually does the thing in more favorable employment environments that you say it's going to do. And no, it does not particularly do that. It, it does certainly reduce participation, but it doesn't necessarily affect employment. And that brings us kind of back to the moral question. This study was looking at able-bodied adults, so it does, you know, kind of cut out some of the more sympathetic arguments for like, well, you don't discriminate against children because their parents aren't looking for work. You know, you can't discriminate against the disabled. Yeah. And it does find that there's a lot of, you know, uh, that there's a big participation effect among people who are homeless. We've discussed in recent episodes how that's, you know, the, the political question of homelessness has become kind of not as much a consensus. These are the most vulnerable people. And so we need to help them problem. And I would just, I wonder kind of where we are in that normative debate, you know, whether it seems like the people who are more hawkish on assistance spending are back at a place where after a couple of decades where there were these kind of like faints on like, no, we're just trying to get to a point where people will work, are willing to go back to saying, no, actually, we are making a moral stance that if you are not actively seeking employment or employed, that you do not deserve access to public benefits, regardless of whether, you know, we think that's going to engineer you to a morally superior endpoint. Yeah, that's interesting. And I don't, you know, Matt, I might have thoughts on that. But as you were describing that, because I like I come at this as a healthcare reporter thinking about Medicaid work requirements. And like, as those were being considered here over the last few years, a, a point that was made again and again by people who oppose the idea was basically that people who, who are on Medicaid who are capable of working almost you know, largely already are like that, that, that most of those people you know, are satisfying a work requirement without any kind of work requirement being in place. And then for, for the rest of the people, there is usually like good reason or quote unquote, I guess, or maybe it's debatable, but like a good reason that they are not working, whether they're elderly or disabled or taking care of young kids or what have you. And that the risk of a Medicaid work requirement is that it just ends up crowding out people who, who might have good reason not to work, but that doesn't necessarily have any kind of material benefit on employment because, again, they're not they're not working for a reason. And I thought of that to some degree. This could just be my own biases manifesting, but like with the homeless population, it's like what? What? Obviously, these are folks who are already struggling in this kind of multitude of ways, and now you're just like imposing a requirement on them that that it does not seem necessarily reasonable for them to be able to meet. And then if they aren't able to meet it, you're going to take away public benefits on which they they clearly rely. I don't know, kind of where where kind of the work requirement discourse is. I know like in the Medicaid space, it, it appears to be a moot issue because of successful court challenges. And, and that program in a way that I, I don't necessarily know that SNAP does has some like, you know, it's, it's kind of statutory basis makes a, a work requirement really hard to justify under the Medicaid law. I wonder if that's kind of what, what underlies a lot of this research that shows no employment benefit is that the problem is it's not like we have such a generous set of welfare benefits that we're actually disincentivizing very many people to work. If they can work, they probably are. And if they're not working, there's a reason that they're not. And so that leaves work requirements seeming kind of impotent other than, you know, leading to some kind of cut in, in enrollment because there is that population who is now being subject to a requirement that they're not going to be able to 
meet for X, Y, or Z reason. I mean, I want to talk about the, the sort of general theory here because I think a lot of people miss the like sensible empirical conclusion here, which is that, you know, you have some people on the right who are like ill disposed to social assistance programs and they see work disincentives like lurking behind every rock, you know? And so they're like, <laughs> oh, you're going to get a child tax credit whether you work or not. Like, Nobody, nobody will work again, right? We need work requirements on SNAP. We need work requirements on Medicaid. Um, then on the other hand, you have people like lefty people who have adopted a kind of like, um, post work utopianism. And I think you saw this in Ezra Klein's latest column where he's talking about the unemployment insurance payments and he's saying, you know, well, we shouldn't be threatening people with poverty to make them work, blah, 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 blah. And what he's missing, I think what Ezra's missing about the structure of the bonus UI or about the old AFDC program is that you lose the benefit if you take a job, right? Mm. That's a very different margin. Like, does giving people a benefit that will be withdrawn if they accept, I mean, generally speaking, like a low-wage, not super pleasant or prestigious job, like, I think clearly there's going to be a disincentive impact. And you look at um, Iona Marinescu's research on the bonus UI, or you look at the old research on AFDC, and also on the amount of gray market work that people are doing. Like, it's very clear that the government's like, here's some money. But if you get a job, we're taking the money away. Mm -hmm. If nothing else, it incentivizes people to cheat, you know, and like not report the, the income. But at the same time, we see again and again that it's like, look, you get the Medicaid whether or not you work just doesn't have a big impact. And if you think about just like normal middle class people, right? It's like if I told you, Dylan, okay, uh, you got to really hustle you know, for like the next three weeks. But if you just like crush it at work, then you're going to get like a huge promotion and a raise. You're not going to be like, well, I've already got a job. <laughs> right? Like right. The, the, the work incentive is that you get more money if you work. Like yeah. that's just the exact same incentive that all people are operating on, on all the time. Like it's literally the whole basis of the economy is that normal people <laughs> don't want to live at the like Medicaid snap subsistence level, right? Like that's why people go to college. That's why people change jobs. Like everything, like, you know, people, people want, more money than they have and they are willing to do work in exchange for it. And if they're not, right, like if you're at that very low living standard of like a SNAP and Medicaid beneficiary, it is like almost certainly because there is like a real reason. If just like trying a little harder would get you more money, like you would you would do it. But that's totally different from saying, okay, the benefit is contingent on not working. Because then you've really eliminated the the benefit that people have. And you can say, you know, there's there's side benefits to limiting labor supply and you're you're bidding up people's wages, you know. So there there are reasons people have to advocate for it. But these work requirements are like they're operating on a really weird like view of like just like ask anybody, like, would you try like a little bit harder in exchange for a bunch of money? And like everybody would, I, I mean, or if they wouldn't, it's like there's something specific going on. Like I'm sick. I need to take care of a disabled partner. You know, like people have problems in their lives, but like a normal, healthy, well person will like try a little harder in exchange for more money. If you give them the chance, you don't need to threaten them uh, like that. And I just think that's what you see in these studies. Uh, but also like Republicans want to come up with reasons to cut 
spending. Right. Like this this works, right? Like it's not, it, it, you know, they are not like highly empirical. They they don't believe in taxing and spending and redistributing money. It's just like I think what it comes down to makes sense. That's what now I that, now that Matt has successfully explained the economy to everyone. Anyway, yeah. So anyway, thanks to uh, anybody out there listening for you know redistributing money to uh, weed sponsors, and thanks to sponsors <laughs> for their own redistributive work. We are all trying to keep the economy moving in a world without work requirements. We're still podcasting <laughs> for you, uh, you know, just because we love it um, and because incentives work. Uh, so thanks so much, Dylan, for uh, explaining this to us, for trying to pronounce this drug, and uh, thanks as always to our producer Eric Tanakis and who's will be back on Friday. Support for this show comes from Fundrise. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting Fundrise.com Fox. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at Fundrise.com flagship. This is a paid advertisement.